This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So Liza, I'm going to start by asking this. Who doesn't have classified documents at this point? You know, I don't. (laughs) I don't. Are you sure? I feel a little left out. Elizabeth Goitine, she goes by Liza, works at the Brennan Center. But she was a government attorney for years. Well, yeah, no, it's interesting how many people I've spoken to in the last few days who have said, my God, I'm going to go look at my file cabinets at home. I mean, you know, people who would actually have authorized access to classified information, pretty much, you know, people who are sweeping the floor in the halls of the Department of Homeland Security need a clearance. <laughs> I called Liza up because I wanted a guide to the ongoing drip, drip, drip of information about government executives squirreling away classified documents. Back in August, former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago stash was raided. Sources telling ABC News the search is related to allegations the former president improperly removed documents when he left the White House. They were brought to Mar-a-Lago, including classified material. And it wasn't the first... In the months since, files have turned up in Joe Biden's home and his office and at Mike Pence's place, too. The FBI search of the president's Wilmington, Delaware home lasted 13 hours and turned up even more classified material than his lawyers had found there before. We don't really know much about these documents, just that they seem to be everywhere. Liza says the first thing you need to understand here is that it isn't just presidents and vice presidents who are slipping classified files in their briefcases. A whole lot of people have access to this information. There aren't numbers available for the the past year, but I think the last time there was a number available, you know, close to 4 million people who uh, have security clearance who have access to classified information. Oh, did you say 4 million? 4 million. 4 million. And, you know, if you ask me, that's not a great way to keep secrets. The other thing Liza wanted to get across is that in addition to a whole lot of people having access to classified information, there's just a lot of classified information out there. A few years back, a government watchdog tried to tally up how many classified documents just one intelligence agency was creating. The number was staggering. It is estimated that approximately one petabyte of classified records data accumulates every 18 months. Petabyte? I don't even know what a petabyte is. Well, I'm going to help you with that. So what the petab said is one petabyte of information is equivalent to approximately 20 million four-drawer filing cabinets filled with text. Whoa. I mean, you've said part of the problem here is that when there's any uncertainty, officials default to classifying. But wouldn't that keep information safer? Uh, You would think. I mean, it does result in more information being marked as classified, but it also creates enormous challenges for maintaining consistent compliance with the rules and procedures for protecting the classified information. Today on the show, when there are a whole lot of secrets and a whole lot of people with access to them, are they really secrets at all? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, I'm wondering if you can do some like reporterly work with me here and just take me through what's happened over the last year or so. Because if we go chronologically... Like classified documents were first found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate back in January of 2022, so about a year ago. And then there was this raid on Mar-a-Lago in August, and that really focused everyone in on the former president. Well, yeah. So it's not that they were sort of found at Mar-a-Lago because that that kind of makes it sound as if, you know, Trump's team were like, oh, look, here's some- someone stumbled over them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, the National Archives said, hey, wait a minute. We've got these documents that are missing. We're supposed to have these presidential records accessioned to us, to NARA, uh, National Archives and Records Administration. And they're missing. Where are they? And that's how we all learned that there were, you know, 15 boxes or whatever it was of presidential records, including classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. And is this just because the National Archives was doing like a typical process? Like I'm imagining them with a whole file cabinet and they're flipping through and they're like, huh, these files are missing. Where are those? Well, that's right. That's right. I mean, they have their own systems for tracking presidential records because it's their job to to maintain those records and to acquire those records after an administration uh, ends. And so, yes, they were doing their job. And uh, in the course of doing that, they, they noticed that there were some very obvious omissions in the records that had been accessioned. And so they reached out to try to clarify that. And that began this long saga of the National Archives trying to wrest these documents from the Trump team. Uh, And the Trump team dragged its heels and they said they're not, you know, there are documents, there's possible privilege, et cetera, et cetera. It was really a long fight. And when, when there were finally documents turned over, it was clear that some were missing. And ultimately, in order to try to get uh, all of the documents, the Department of Justice uh, had to issue a subpoena. But then it quickly became clear that that there were still documents that had not been turned over, that that the subpoena had not been fully complied with. And in fact, in the DOJ filings, uh, there's reference to surveillance footage that appears to show an effort on the part of uh, members of the Trump team to conceal the document so that the FBI would not be able to retrieve them all. So the fact that the subpoena was not fully complied with led to the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Things got a little complicated when in November, documents were found at an office of President Biden's, an old office that he wasn't really using. They were found under different circumstances. It sounds like Biden's team found them and, and sort of called, tried to call them in. And then last week, more classified documents were found at Mike Pence's home. At this point, the Department of Justice has appointed special counsels to investigate Trump and Biden. So theoretically, there could be legal consequences for either of them. What do those legal consequences potentially look like? Well, so in general, if there is accidental mishandling of classified information, that is dealt with, if at all, through administrative penalties. And, you know, a person can, for example, have their clearance revoked or suspended or any number of other administrative penalties. Now, 
once you're out of government, the administrative penalties are, uh, I mean, you can still use or lose your clearance, which can be a, a problem for future jobs you might want to have. But at that point, you're looking at criminal penalties, but there are criminal penalties only for particularly uh, egregious types of mishandling of classified, or I should say, mishandling of classified information that is considered by the government to be particularly egregious. And that would include, it generally includes leaks to the media when those leaks paint the government in a not so great light. Hmm. So it hinges on intent. Like, what are you going to do with this information or what have you done? Right. So there's leaks to make the document public, which, you know, are deliberate. And then there is accidental or negligent mishandling. And and to qualify for criminal penalties, that has to rise to a level. On paper, it has to rise to a level of gross negligence. In practice, the Department of Justice does not actually pursue charges against someone for negligent mishandling unless there's an element of willfulness unless it really it's so it's so egregious that it rises to the level of you know it, there had to be some sort of element of intent involved you've talked a bit about overclassification and clearly it's it's your interest here it just leads me to this question of like how does something become classified in the first place who decides if if we're doing too much of it like who's who's the person saying yeah that's got to be kept under lock and key so ultimately, the authority to classify documents resides in the president. Just the president? Well, no, that's where it begins, right? So the, the Constitution, Article 2 of the Constitution, has been interpreted to vest in the president this responsibility and authority to protect national security information. That doesn't mean that Congress can't legislate in this area. It can. There, there are lots of areas of, of shared responsibility between the president and Congress. But at the beginning of the process... It's the president's authority to say this is national security information. Now, the president has delegated that authority through executive order to others and, and has authorized those others to further delegate the authority. So at this point, there are roughly 2,000 executive branch officials who are what's called original classification authorities, OCAs. Huh. And these are the people who have the authority in the first instance to say, okay, it's my judgment that releasing this information or that that if this information could lead to damage to the national security if it were released, therefore, I am going to classify the information. But then there's close to four million people who have access to classified information, who work with it, uh, you know, in their jobs. And they need to make sure that when they are generating documents, emails, text messages, whatever it is, that any classified information that they put in those are properly marked. Yeah, how is classified information supposed to be handled? Like I picture a locked briefcase, someone with like white gloves like handing the president a folder and then taking it back. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I mean, there there are rules for the storage and transport of classified information and yeah, you need a lock bag, what they call a lock bag to to transport classified information from one place to another. So the General Services Administration prescribes standards for physical storage of classified documents. And, you know, the, the standards differ depending on whether we're talking about, you know, top secret, secret or confidential information. But yeah, I mean, all that stuff you see in the movies, that's real. I mean, you, you can't just sort of pick up a, a classified document and sort of take it wherever you want and leave it wherever you want. So then how does a document end up next to Biden's Corvette in Delaware? Uh, because the rules were not followed. 
Hmm. And that does not mean that President Biden said, screw the rules, I'm going to take things home. Those documents could have, he he could very well have had authorized access to those documents in whatever office he was in. And they could have ended up in a stack of other documents and, and he could have mistakenly brought them home, not in a locked briefcase. And this is not a great thing. I'm, I'm not trying to excuse it, but it happens a lot. You work at the Brennan Center now, but you've worked in government before. So did you ever handle classified documents in that time? I did not. I did not. And in fact, I I avoided it uh, like the plague. I mean, there were a couple of lawsuits that um, I, I worked in a, in a litigation department of the Department of Justice, and uh, there were some cases where I would have had to get a clearance in order to work on those cases. And I did my best to avoid those cases because hmm. one of the things that comes with getting a security clearance is that for most, in most cases, for the rest of your life, if you want to publish anything on the general subject of anything that you had access to classified information about, even if you're not saying anything classified, you have to run that through the agency and get clearance to publish that. Wow. And I knew that I someday wanted to, you know, be thinking and writing about issues relating to national security and civil liberties. It was something I've always been interested in. And I could not do the job I have right now if I had ever in my life had a security clearance. I couldn't do it. Did you see how your colleagues' behavior changed once they did have clearances? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you talk about how protecting this information makes it hard to get work done. I worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee And I had a colleague on the committee who had a security clearance, and we were trying to work together on some legislation. And in order to scrupulously protect the classified information that she was privy to, she would just err on the side of just, you know, there were whole areas that would have been really useful to discuss relating to this legislation that we were working on that she wouldn't talk about at all for fear that the conversation could get too close to classified information. So massively overprotecting, but for good reason. Hmm. In writing about these misadventures with classified documents over the last few months, you quoted a Supreme Court justice who rejected the government's bid to stifle the publication of the Pentagon Papers back in the 70s. And the quote goes like this. When everything is classified, then nothing is classified, and the system becomes one to be disregarded by the cynical or the careless. And I thought about that because it seems to me looking at the fact that we have Biden, Pence, Trump, all having these classified documents in their possession, potentially, it feels to me like we have a collection of cynical and potentially careless people. Like, it's exactly the people and the the impacts that this Supreme Court justice cited decades ago. And it was really striking to me. It's a great quote. I mean, it just sums it up so nicely. And I think that's the world we're living in right now. I, I, I th- And it's not that everybody is cynical or careless. I think it may operate on a, um, as I said before, on a more subconscious level. I think if you talk to most people, they would absolutely tell you that they think protecting classified information is incredibly important, but they will tell you in the same breath that they think way too much information is classified that shouldn't be classified. We'll be back after a break.
As of now, it's still a little unclear what information was in the documents that Trump, Biden, and Pence took home with them. It is known that in Biden's case, at least, some of the documents were top secret, the highest of the three levels of classification. But Liza says that designation, it might not tell you as much as you'd think. Overclassification happens at all levels of classification. It happens at confidential, secret, top secret. Uh, There are documents that should be classified as confidential that are classified as top secret. There are documents that should not be classified at all that are classified as top secret. Hmm. Like what? Uh, Well, so I'm going to go back in time here, but there was a World War II era report by the Navy entitled Shark Attacks on Human Beings. And it was classified until 1958. What? Yeah. And the report, it turned, so what was in the report? It detailed 69 cases of shark attacks on, on human beings. Which, like, you assume were reported in the news. Yeah, yeah. So, so the about. document included an article uh, that was taken from a Brooklyn newspaper. That was also marked classified. The usual reason given for classification is that it keeps all of us safer to have information kept secret. Which is why I was struck by this article you wrote for Foreign Policy, where you said former officials estimate that anywhere from 50 to 90 percent of classified information could be made public without harming national security. How is that? (laughs) Like, (laughs) it was just so stunning to me. And do you have an example of, of something that could be made public but is just sitting behind a lock and key right now? I mean, we you, well, we don't know what we don't know. But I'll, I'll, I so I'll give you I'll give you the, the best example I can think of right now. Last year, we learned that the CIA was conducting a bulk collection program, not under any statutory authority at all, but just under an executive order that pulls in Americans' data, and that the CIA sort of uses all of this data it collects to, to look for information about Americans. What kind of data? We don't know. So this is the thing. <laughs> we the, All of this was the subject of a report that the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, that's a, that's a um, presidentially appointed board that's supposed to sort of balance issues of counterterrorism and, and civil liberties. They did a report on this and, and they submitted it to members of Congress. And then members of Congress spent a year trying to get it declassified. And the only thing, essentially, that uh, the CIA was willing to declassify was just literally the existence of the program. But the entire uh, substantive report of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board remains classified entirely. Now, I understand that the CIA does not want to say who it's collecting information about or how specifically it's using that information. But literally, not even the type of data that the CIA is collecting, it defies belief that there is not a word of this report that could be declassified. So that's an example of something that is classified right now that, you know, parts of it quite likely should be classified. But we don't have even the most basic information about this program that is directly affecting our rights. Did these agencies ever give a reason why this information was classified? No. No, but sometimes you can guess the reason. So in the 1960s, the FBI wiretapped Martin Luther King Jr.'s telephone and the information about that activity and the the stated purpose of doing this, by the way, in the FBI's own words, 
was to gain information about King's personal life that could be used to, quote, completely discredit him as the leader of the Negro people. So that was the goal. And information about those wiretaps were classified top secret. You're laying out all the ways that overclassification actually does not make us safer. And the thing is, you're not the first person to point out this problem. I was struck by this one quote from a guy named Mark Bradley, who's the director of information security oversight. Last summer, he said that his office had stopped trying to count the annual production of government secrets. He said he could no longer keep his head above the tsunami. And it just made me wonder, like, if the guy in charge of information security oversight can't keep track of all this, how the heck are we going to fix it? That's a really good question. I mean, yeah, they, I sue the Information Security Oversight Office, stopped tracking the number of classification decisions back in 2017. It wasn't just that there were so many of these decisions. It was that it is incredibly difficult to accurately capture them in the electronic environment. And different agencies were doing it in different ways. And, and you know, Mark just didn't have any confidence that they were doing it sort of consistently and accurately and, and therefore was worried that the, that the number you know, would be would be misleading, would probably be an undercount. That's what we're dealing with. That is the extent of the problem that we're dealing with. And this really, I mean, it's not just that all of this information is out of the public domain, which means we can't talk about it, we can't debate it to the extent that this is, you know, revealing policies, actions of our government. We can't even govern ourselves by weighing in on these actions. But it also means that the historical record is just impoverished because so much information about how the government operates is not public and by at the rate we're going is never going to be public. And so we're sort of starving history at the same time that we are uh, making it impossible for, for people to know and weigh in on what their government is doing. So given that the classification system operates out of the executive branch, What would President Biden have to do to change things? There are many things he could do, and a lot of experts have weighed in with some great suggestions. The first is to start the work of developing new and narrower criteria for classifying information in the first instance. So right now, the officials who are authorized to classify information have almost complete discretion to decide what information to classify. As long as they say, oh, I think this would harm national security, that's pretty much it. That's all they have to do. And it is important, I think, that that these individuals can exercise some judgment and some discretion, but it shouldn't be unbounded. So I think narrowing the substantive criteria for classification is is the first thing that uh, President Biden should set out to do. The next thing has to do with people who are not authorized to classify information in the first instance, but are supposed to mark the documents they produce when there's classified information in it. And what happens is that these people, rather than sort of go through the document and figure out, oh, hey, this is classified, somebody else, somebody classified this, an original authority classified this or not. They just mark everything as classified because it's easier, it's safer. Hmm. What the government could be doing and what the president could direct is to really invest in developing machine learning technologies that could essentially, all of these original classification decisions could be fed into the system. And then the computer algorithm essentially would then be able to detect 
the patterns of words and phrases that match with these sort of original classification decision and therefore identify information in documents that requires marking. So then maybe not all 60 pages of this report are classified, but just like page 43. Exactly. So so we could have sort of automated sort of assistance to people who are engaged in marking information as classified to try to avoid them marking everything that way. But one of the most important things is really to have in place some kind of accountability for people who are sort of just defaulting to classification without any thought and who are routinely or negligently overclassifying information. Right now, there are no systems in place to even identify such individuals, let alone hold them accountable. And the president could direct agencies to develop these systems, some form of audits or, or something like that, to, in order to detect when this is happening and to make sure that, that you know, they would face penalties for underclassifying. Because really, there are national security harms on both sides of the equation. Liza, I'm so grateful for your time. I feel like my brain is like twice its size now. (laughs) Well, thank you. No, I I love talking about classification. So thank you for having me. Elizabeth Goitin is the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. And that's the show. If you learned something by listening to this interview and you want to show us how much you appreciate that, the best way to do that is to look into our membership program. It's called Slate Plus. The way to find out more is to go to slate.com slash whatnextplus. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting a ton of help right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with an assist from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond, he makes sure I read the ads. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.